go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your kindness uh, in bringing us here today. And we thank you for your word and the, the promise that your word is sufficient uh, to give us faith, to teach us about who you are, about ourselves. We thank you that in your word, uh, you have placed the words of life that the gospel may be made known to us. And we thank you that by your spirit, you have illuminated your word to us. Father, I pray that you would do that same work uh, right now, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts and our minds would be acceptable to you and, and would cause us to see and glorify your son. Father, you have said, blessed uh, are so many. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger but also blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Father, we want the blessing, but so often it is hard for us to think about the fact that we will, this side of heaven, go through many troubles and many tribulations. And so, Father, I pray that you would use our text this morning to strengthen us in our faith in you and our trust in you so that when times of suffering do come, that we might be able to look to you, that we might not crumble uh, under the weight of whether persecution or sorrow, sin, but Father, that you would help us to turn our face to our Savior. So use this time, Lord. Use our time together. Uh, use our time in the word. To this end, we ask in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Khosro was born into a wealthy family in Iran. His mother was a physician and his father was a dentist. They lived in a beautiful home with a garden and an aviary in the home. Talked about how he had birds in the walls. And in his autobiographical novel, Everything Sad is Untrue, Daniel Nayiri describes how he had been forced to leave his home as a child because his mother had become a Christian and she'd openly shared her faith. When she had, the Islamist government had issued a fatwa against her and threatened to kill her children. She fled with Hosro and his sister to Dubai and then to a refugee camp in Italy. And they were finally able to seek asylum in the United States. And once in the States, their family found safety, but they also found loneliness and humiliation and discrimination, as well as more violence because his mother had remarried an abusive man. And through the book, our family just read it together, through the book, you feel the confusion and the helplessness and the loneliness of a young boy who is exiled from his home and forced to live in a place where he often feels out of place and unwanted. And I think these are the same types of feelings that we read about in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 142. The context uh, for the psalm is what Emily read for us, uh, but it's uh, found in the superscript, uh, which is uh, a maskil of David. Maskil is a, probably a musical term. We don't really know what that means. Uh, when he was in the cave, and it says a prayer. Well, we find David in a cave uh, many times uh, throughout 
uh, well, a few times at least, uh, and he probably was in caves more than just was recorded, but Emily read from us from 1 Samuel 22, chapter, chapter 22, verse 1, uh, where he is in a cave. But he's also, we find him in a cave in, in uh, 1 Samuel 24, verse 3, when David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. Commentators are split about what, when uh, David is talking about. They don't seem to agree on which occasion the psalm is referring to, but in some ways, I don't think it really matters. I don't think we really need to know, because it's not really what that's about. It could be that David was, was writing about the moment that he had fled from Gath, and he'd made escape to find refuge in the cave of Adullam, as he'd been forced to flee for his life, first from Saul and then from the Philistines. We can imagine David alone in the cave. He's, he's crying out, praying these words to God as he is alone. But I think we can just as easily imagine David praying these same words, these words of the psalm, as he's surrounded by his men, as he's fortified in the cave, expressing his feelings of helplessness and loneliness, even though he's surrounded by others. See, feelings that even the most faithful sufferer can experience. That's what we find in this psalm. Feelings of helplessness and loneliness that can be felt when we are alone or when we're in the midst of a crowd. The words of this psalm can be classified as a lament. This is truly a lament. And Mark Vergop defines a lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And certainly we hear David's pain expressed in this, and we'll get to the trust by the end. But it's a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Or maybe a little bit more of a comprehensive definition is that lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God's goodness. So the lament really lives with these twin realities, the promises of God's goodness and the pain that we read about, that we see, that we experience in our world this side of heaven. And this morning as we walk through the psalm, I believe, I hope that we will see that as faithful Christians living in a fallen world, it's actually the goodness and the faithfulness of God that moves us toward lament. It is good for us to lament. And our main point for this morning is that the goodness and faithfulness of God moves us toward lament. Therefore, we cry out to God in our anguish. We cry out to God in our anguish. That's the first point. So I said, in the superscript, we're told that David wrote this psalm as a prayer. And so we're going we're gonna to treat it as a prayer. And one of the reasons, uh, we've, we've talked about the superscript in, in almost every, one, every time we've uh, talked about the Psalms in the last five weeks. One of the reasons why we pay so much attention to the superscript is that it's actually verse one of the Psalm. In the Hebrew text, it's verse one, and, and what we have written down as verse one is really verse two. And so it is part of the original uh, Hebrew, and that's why we give it so much attention which you know, is different than if you see in uh, italic letters, you're my refuge, which that was placed there by the publishers. Anyway, I thought wanted to, to mention that. But this psalm is a prayer 
And as David begins his prayer, we first should notice the words of repetition. Words of repetition that we, that we find there. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. So do you see the repetition, right? With my voice, to the Lord, I cry out. With my voice, to the Lord, I plead for mercy. First thing we notice is that in the midst of David's distress, he directs his, tri- his cries for help and mercy to the Lord. That seems obvious, right? He's praying, but, but it's not always obvious, not in our own lives. David's anguish is so great, first we see that he literally, he, he cries out. He, he speaks out with his voice to the Lord. Right? He's exhausted and he's feeling utterly defeated, but with what energy he does have, he cries out to the God who hears. He pleads for mercy to the God who is merciful. What is David's response when he's confronted by this deadly peril? What is his plan when he's overwhelmed by helplessness and loneliness? David turns to God. He turns to the Lord in prayer. He doesn't plot his revenge. In fact, this psalm actually, we don't even find that David asks for God to strike down his enemies. He doesn't simply grit his teeth and simply uh, and stoically try to bear the suffering like a real guy, like a real man, like a tough person. No, he goes to the Lord. David passionately lifts up his voice to cry out to the Lord. And then in verse 2, we see that David writes, I pour out my complaint before him, and I will tell my trouble before him, literally before his face. Before the face of God, David says, I pour out my complaint and I tell my trouble. David's prayer of lament, we don't want to confuse it, right? This isn't just a list of grievances that he has. It's different than the word, when he uses the word uh, complaint, it's a different word than grumbling. Grumbling communicates a, a heart of unbelief, right? A heart of unbelief that you know, implies that God doesn't care or maybe that God's malicious. You know, how could you do this to me, God? That's grumbling, but that's not what David is doing. The word complaint that David uses here implies a heart of faith. His heart comes from a place of desperation, but it is directed to the God who he asks for help and mercy from. So it's different than mere grumbling. And then David speaks his complaint in in verses three and four when he says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. And the path where I walk, you have hidden a trap for me, or they have hidden a trap for me. I look to the right and I see none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. By faith, David knows that the Lord knows his way. By faith, David knows that the Lord watches over his life, but he, he's exhausted and he's feeling every ounce of the stress that's weighing him down. The language that he uses here evokes a sense of a person who is at the very end of their strength and their ability to strive. He can't do it anymore. He has no more resources to draw on. 
One commentator pointed out that that David's language carries with it very much a sense of depression, deep disappointment. While God helps in life, people do not. So David has no one. He has no one at his right hand, no friends or allies to help him or support him. In fact, the only people in his life that he mentions seem to intensify his trouble. So along the path of life, right, David's enemies have hidden traps, they've hidden snares for him. It's, the word is literally for a, a trap where you would catch a bird, a snare, causing him to, to stumble. So right, we sense feelings of uncertainty and vulnerability. Right? No one is in his life even sees or takes notice of his struggle. No one cares for his soul. He has no place of refuge, no safety. As I said, that the only context that we're given really is that he is in a cave. And yet he says, I have no refuge. Right? And what is that? The word refuge itself implies, uh, as the Old Testament used it, it's, it's a place of safety, a place from danger, a relief from stress and a defense from enemies, protection from harsh elements, overall security. And, and a lot of times, the refuge is a rock. Is, is a place, whether it's a home or a fortress. But here, even in the midst of the refuge of a cave, David says he finds no refuge, no relief, no comfort. And so what do you do when even in your place of refuge, your safe place, you, you don't feel safe? What do you do? I, and I think the answer is one that even we need to, to wrestle with today. I mean, have you ever felt unsafe? Have you ever felt uh, that, that you have no one who understands you or who is by your side? Have you ever felt utterly alone? Brothers and sisters, I think it's a question that we need to wrestle with, even within our church. I've heard from actually many individuals uh, within our congregation say that they feel like Even our own congregation is no longer as safe as it used to be. Maybe not from physical harm, but even as we say, we proclaim from the front and we talk about how the gospel is what unites us, it's been a tough couple years. And over these past years, whether it's differences in in politics or approaches to dealing with issues of, of sexuality or racism, School decisions, all these things have threatened to divide us in in the same way that our own country is divided. Where we're tempted to cancel each other or dismiss each other, those who don't agree with us. And when even our own refuge, our own church home no longer feels safe, the question is, what do we do? Certainly there's a lot that we can do. And there's certainly things that the elders are doing, but, but as we look at this psalm, as we look at the text this morning, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to lament. We need to turn to God in prayer. We need to allow our hearts and our pain to turn our, I should say, the pain in our hearts to, to turn us to God. Not to turn on one another, but, but to turn to the Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And often, in our pain, we either close up or we lash out. Instead, we need to turn to God in prayer. We need to to bring to him our complaints, our sorrows, our hurts, and our frustrations. We shouldn't ignore the problem, pretend like everything is okay, which I admit, I am guilty of that. Uh, I'm prone to do that. And, uh, and even over these past years, right, I've just wanted everything to be okay. But as I've studied this week, it's reminded me that that's not really what we ought to do. We're to bring to God our complaints, just as David does. We can go to him. We can bluntly go to God with our fears and our sorrows, our frustrations and our questions. Right? And it's, it's because of the goodness and faithfulness of God that we know that we can cry out to him. We cry out to him because he will listen to us. And so even when we do feel alone and, and in our grief and sorrow and our frustrations, even when we feel exhausted and it feels like everyone and everything is against us, that's when we should turn to the Lord. We should use that inclination, that that feeling in us to turn us to God, to lament, to turn to him in prayer and to raise up honestly and openly to him our complaints. See, it's the goodness and faithfulness of God that moves us toward lament and and so we, we cry to him in complaint and we look to God for deliverance. We look to God for deliverance David did not find refuge from life's troubles in other people. He ultimately knew that he would only find it in God. And so he continues the prayer in verse 5. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So David finds refuge, true safety and security in God. I think of the lyrics uh, from the hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone, but still support and comfort me. So that hymn is, is really expressing what David is saying here. I have no other refuge. But David sees his refuge in the Lord. Why? Because he knows that the Lord is the good shepherd that David wrote about. In Psalm 23, remember we went, we went through that about five weeks ago, right? He's the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, who provides all of the sheep's needs. He leads him beside still waters. He safely guides him through the valley of the shadow of death. He's the same Lord who allowed him to escape from the king of Gath. He's a good shepherd. So David finds his refuge there. And he also then pray, says that, that God is his portion. Right? David proclaims that the Lord is his portion. What does that mean? It's, the portion is, is, can be food, but it can also be his inheritance. Right? When, when they entered into the land, the, the land was apportioned out, and that was your inheritance in the land. Remember now, David has been exiled from the land. He's had to flee because of Saul and his murderous plot against David. So he, he has nothing. So what does David say? That the Lord is my portion. 
He's my true inheritance. His true inheritance is found and held secure by God alone. He knows what's truly important to him is not his food, his wealth, or his land, but only God. This is the same thing that he wrote in Psalm 34. He said, young lions will suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And that good thing is ultimately the Lord himself. Often it's because of pain or in the midst of pain that our eyes are opened to what is truly important in our lives. Think about every time uh, that I give a sermon at a funeral. People, are, people tend to be very soft at funerals because all of a sudden, all of the frustrations of their lives are brought into focus as they're confronted with issues of life and death. Things that would have bothered them previously don't seem nearly as important anymore. Things like, for David, being driven out of the land, losing his inheritance, and being all alone. Now he sees that the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is his portion. And David continues with verse 6 by asking the Lord for help. So he raises his complaint and then he asks the Lord for his help. He says, attend to me. Attend to my cry. And the word cry there is the same word that we would translate or could translate as lament. So attend to my lament for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors for they're too strong for me. Remember, who is David? Right? Even in the text that was just read for us, David's not the king, not yet but he's still very strong and very capable. He is a warrior. Remember what they sang about him, right? Saul killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And yet here he comes before the Lord because he knows he's completely inadequate. In all his manliness, what does David do? David's not afraid to admit that he's weak and that he needs God's help. So David boldly asks the Lord for help because he knows that God is good and in his goodness, he's willing to help David. God is faithful to keep his promises, to care for David, and as David knows, to one day crown him as king. And so he boldly asks the Lord for help because he knows that God sees his plight and sees him in the midst of his plight. It's the same we see David reflected in Psalm 56, that he knows that the Lord has kept count of his tossings and put David's tears in his bottle. And so David boldly asks the Lord for help because he knows that God hears and responds. Psalm 34, another example, right, where David had written, and these are all Psalms that we've gone through in the past couple weeks, Right? When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, as putting together this kind of series of psalms that we would go through, right? starting with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? we, we hear that and our hearts are lifted up. But then as we've dealt with these various psalms that relate to the events in 
1 Samuel, you may notice that many of them really happen right around this same time period. When David has fled from Gath, he's on the run, and it's just at the beginning of his exile. And if you've been paying attention to the tone of the Psalms, they're going down. David is feeling worse and worse. But his faith is just as strong because he knows that God is there and God will help him and rescue him. You know, one of the reasons uh, that I felt like this uh, series would be so helpful for us is because I think we can relate to Psalm 23 and, and, and find joy there. But it's really hard for us to relate to things like laments, things like Psalm 142, because we're uncomfortable with lament. And the reason, I think, is because we are uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Right? Think about our world and, and all that it, it tells us to do. That when, when somebody says, how are you doing this morning? What do you always say? I'm good, fine, thank you. How often are you, really, do you even feel comfortable honestly asking someone if you're having a bad day? We're attuned to think of life as always getting better, or at least being good, or at least pretending that life is good. But as we read, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that all who are in Christ Jesus will suffer. We're not comfortable with lament because we're not comfortable with our discomfort. And yet it is our discomfort often that leads us to Christ. And so like David, we need to be able to humbly and boldly go to the Lord and know that he hears and responds. And sometimes, just as David is feeling anguish, sometimes we too need to feel more anguish than we do. Sometimes we feel pretty unmoved because we're not paying attention either to what ought to grieve us in our own lives Maybe we're comfortable in our own sin. Or we simply ignore the suffering that's all around us. Right? Think about how many news stories you've read in the last week that if they happen to you or our immediate community would lead you to tears. And yet we scroll through the news feeds and think nothing of it. I think it's the goodness and uh, the kindness of God that ought to lead us to lament more than we do. It, lead us, it ought to lead us to feel the pain of the world around us. Well, let's look at verse 7, the last verse of, of the psalm. He says, out of his anguish that David, finally then we see him, he places his hope in God, fully trusting that God will indeed deliver him. Verse 7, he says, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Do you hear the certainty that David has in here? Right? The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, whether David is referring, uh, when he says prison, metaphorically to, to the prison of the cave where he feels trapped, or maybe the prison of feeling in exile uh, and on the run, or he just feels prisoner to his own circumstances. David fully believes that God will deliver him. He knows that he will. 
David says that when God does deliver him, David will praise his name. He says he'll no longer be surrounded and pursued by enemies, but he will be surrounded by the community of the righteous. What we see is that the final outcome of David's prayer is hope. Lament, uh, the prayer of lament is intended, the prayer of lament, a prayer is meant to lead us to hope, to trust in God. Right? It's, as we said at the beginning, it's the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain in our lives and the promises of God's goodness. And I want to just outline, Mark Vergat wrote a very good book on lament, and he points out four parts of prayers of lament. So I want to give those to you, right? So four parts of, of a lament. First is uh, to turn to God in prayer, to turn to God in prayer. And so when pain creates struggle, struggles and hard questions in our lives, right, lament invites us to talk to God about those struggles, Right? Even if it's messy or awkward, lamenting is better than faking it or not talking to God at all. So turn to God in prayer. And the second is to bring to God our complaints. To bring our complaints. And remember, the definition of complaint is different than grumbling. And so lament invites us to bluntly tell God our questions, our fears, and our frustrations. And then the third part of lament is to ask boldly, right? To ask God to act according to his promises. So pain, I think, often creates disappointment in us. But lament provides the language that dares us to hope again, to take our eyes off of ourselves and place them on the one who can save us. Lament invites us to ask for help again and again and again. And again. And then the, the fourth part of lament is choose to trust. So gut level, honest prayers provide a pathway for hurting people to move through their pain. Right? We shouldn't see laments as like a cul-de-sac uh, that has no exit of sorrow, but a conduit for renewed faith. And so it ought to, it ought to enliven our faith as we go to the Lord in prayer in lament. So not only do we see uh, that, that lament ends in hope, at least for David here, but verse 7, we, we see one other thing. Verse 7 also shows us that lament should lead us to community worship. So what did he say? He, he said he'd be surrounded, uh, that, that he would uh, be surrounded uh, by the righteous. Think about it. It's like, well, David, this is a personal lament David's talking about. He's talking about himself, right? It's true, but it's written here in the Psalms for us as a community so that we might know how to lament. We might know how to deal with our disappointments and our frustrations and sorrows. So lament should lead us to community worship, right? To, because when we, when we do, right, what are we doing? We're agreeing with God. I think lament helps us to agree with God because we see and acknowledge the suffering that he sees. Not just our own suffering that we feel, but, but the suffering around us. 
And we agree with God because we weep over the wickedness and oppression of others that God sees. Right? We acknowledge our own weaknesses, God's goodness and faithfulness to deliver. Right? And, and we give God the glory by humbly and honestly lamenting. Think about this. We serve a God of truth. God who values truth. A God who knows us intimately, knows everything about us, right? He knows our weaknesses, and so we don't need to pretend, and we ought not to pretend in front of him, right? Imagine, right, you, if God asks you how you're doing, and things aren't going well, and you say everything's fine, you're like the emperor with no clothes, right? You're standing there, and he can see everything, but you're pretending that everything's okay. You're clothing yourself with a lie, So we don't need to pretend before God. We need to uh, be honest with him. We serve a God of truth who uh, is our ultimate refuge. A God who sent his only son to face greater persecution than even David to take all of our sins upon him and to bring us the ultimate deliverance, deliverance from our own sins. So think about it, right? If we say everything is fine, and we're harboring sin, or we're harboring hurt, or frustration, or anger, we tell God everything is fine. We pretend that everything is okay. It's almost like saying, God, I know, I know that you love me, but I don't think you love me quite enough that I'll let you all the way in to, to see and feel my hurt. I want to find refuge in other things other than you. I want to find joy in things other than you. So I'm just going to keep you a little bit away. But I think when we come to God and lament, we're really opening ourselves up to God to allow him to do the work in us, the work of healing and of deliverance. As Christians, we we serve a God who is good and is faithful. But we live in a broken world, a world broken by sin, and so we have reason to lament. God doesn't promise us an easy life. He doesn't promise us wealth. He doesn't promise us comfort or security. But he does promise us himself if we're in him. He promises that he will be our refuge, that he is our refuge. And he's worth more than all the comfort and security and health and wealth that the world could offer. I think back again to preaching at funerals. How many times people at funerals or or on their deathbed say, I would trade all of X, Y, and Z. For what, right? For more, I, I, I would trade my whole life so I could get more money. No. So, so, so I could get more, more wealth. So I could, I could have been more comfortable. No, I, right? On our deathbed or at a funeral, we see things more clearly. Often it's, when we're thinking rightly, we wish that we had given more to God. We had been more open with God. And often it leads people to leave funerals, committing their lives to follow God more seriously. How much are we willing to give up at that funeral? But how much are we willing to give up in our day-to-day lives? And I think lament helps us to put things in order, 
to put the most important things in order. I want to close with an illustration. Right? So in, in the book right, uh, that I started with, Everything Sad is Untrue, Daniel also talks about uh, what he said when, when people asked him why his mother converted to Christianity. Right? Because it was illegal. Christianity was illegal and it, it caused him, he needed to leave. Her family needed to leave, a bit uprooted. And he writes that she had all that wealth, the love of all those people who helped in her clinic, all the respect. They treated her like a queen, but now she was poor. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees. And she'll tell you it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Jesus is better because it's true. It's true and more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs in Jaffa and maybe even your life. He writes, my mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true, that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. See, all her suffering, she said, was worth it. And I pray for us as a church that our own suffering would lead us to treasure Christ in the same way. That our own suffering would lead us to greater trust in the goodness and faithfulness of our God and Savior. Because he's worth it. He's worthy. Right? This is what we're going to celebrate in communion in just a moment. A God who laid down his life that we might be redeemed to him. And so I pray that, that we as a church and as individuals, we would learn how to lament whether it's lamenting over our own sin or lamenting over suffering in our lives or the lives of others, that we would turn to God in prayer, that we would bring our complaints and that we would ask boldly and we would turn to trust. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the gift of his sacrifice that makes us whole. Father, we, we, we thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to not leave us in the midst of our suffering. I pray, Father, that you would help turn our own hearts, not against one another, but always toward you. Father, give us hearts of compassion who are able to see beyond ourselves to the pain and suffering of others around us whether it be our brothers and sisters in our church or our missionaries abroad or, or those in our community, Father, soften our hearts. And I pray that we would lament and take those hurts to you. I pray, too, that you would help us in our own lives to see life as you see it so that we would see the things that grieve you and that we would agree with you and take those things and lay them at your feet. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to not love this world so much that we would think everything is okay this side of heaven, but that you would give us a holy and divine discontentment that would lead us to turn from sin and to rejoice in your son. May even our meal together be that much more sweet, knowing that Jesus gave everything that we might partake. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.